The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon, Volume 5, Chapter 56, Part 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 56 The Saracens, the Franks, and the Normans, Part 3. Recording by Claude Banta. Roger, the twelfth and last of the sons of Tancred, had been long detained in Normandy by his own age. He accepted the welcome summons only in camp, and deserved at the first esteem, and afterwards the envy, of his elder brother. Their valor and ambition were equal, but the youth, the beauty, the elegant manners of Roger engaged the disinterested love of the soldiers and people, so scanty was his allowance for himself and forty followers, that he descended from conquest to robbery, and from robbery to domestic theft, and so loose were the notions of property, that, by his own historian, at his special command, he is accused of stealing horses from a stable at Melfi. His spirit emerged from poverty and disgrace. From these base practices he rose to the merit and glory of a holy war, and the invasion of Sicily was seconded by the zeal and policy of his brother Guiscard. After the retreat of the Greeks, the idolaters, a most audacious reproach of the Catholics, had retrieved their losses and possessions. But the deliverance of the island, so vainly undertaken by the forces of the Eastern Empire, was achieved by a small and private band of adventurers. In the first attempt, Roger braved in an open boat the real and fabulous dangers of Scylla and Charybdis, landed with only sixty soldiers on a hostile shore, drove the Saracens to the gates of Messina, and safely returned with the spoils of the adjacent country. In the fortress of Trani, his active and patient courage were equally conspicuous. In his old age he related with pleasure that, by the distress of the siege, himself and the countess, his wife, had been reduced to a single cloak or mantle, which they wore alternately, that in a sally his horse had been slain, and he was dragged away by the Saracens, but that he owed his rescue to his good sword, and had retreated with his saddle on his back, lest the meanest trophy might be left in the hands of the miscreants. In the siege of Trani, three hundred Normans withstood and repulsed the forces of the island. In the field of Ceramio, fifty thousand horse and foot were overthrown by one hundred and thirty-six Christian soldiers, without reckoning St. George, who fought on horseback in the foremost ranks. The captive banners, with four camels, were reserved for the successor of St. Peter, and had these barbaric spoils been exposed, not in the Vatican, but in the capital, they might have revived the memory of the Punic triumphs. These insufficient numbers of the Normans most probably denote their knights, the soldiers of honorable and equestrian rank, each of whom was attended by five or six followers in the field. Yet, with the aid of this interpretation, and after every fair allowance on the side of valor, arms, and reputation, the discomfiture of so many myriads will reduce the prudent reader to the alternative of a miracle or a fable. The Arabs of Sicily derived a frequent and powerful succor from their countrymen of Africa. In the siege of Palermo, the Norman cavalry was assisted by the galleys of Pisa, 
and in the hour of action the envy of the two brothers was sublimed to a generous and invincible emulation. After a war of thirty years, Roger, with the title of great count, obtained the sovereignty of the largest and most fruitful island of the Mediterranean, and his administration displays a liberal and enlightened mind above the limits of his age and education. The Muslims were maintained in the free enjoyment of their religion and property, a philosopher and physician of Mazara, of the race of Mahomet, harangued the conqueror, and was invited to court. His geography of the seven climates was translated into Latin, and Roger, after a diligent perusal, preferred the work of the Arabian to the writings of the Grecian Ptolemy. A remnant of Christian natives had promoted the success of the Normans. They were rewarded by the triumph of the cross, the island was restored to the jurisdiction of the Roman pontiff, new bishops were planted in the principal cities, and the clergy was satisfied by a liberal endowment of churches and monasteries. Yet the Catholic hero asserted the rights of the civil magistrate. Instead of resigning the investiture of benefices, he dexterously applied to his own profit the papal claims. The supremacy of the crown was secured and enlarged by the singular bull which declares the princes of Sicily hereditary and perpetual legates of the Holy See. To Robert Guiscard, the conquest of Sicily was more glorious than beneficial. The possession of Apulia and Calabria was inadequate to his ambition, and he resolved to embrace or create the first occasion of invading, perhaps of subduing, the Roman Empire of the East. From his first wife, the partner of his humble fortune, he had been divorced under the pretense of consanguinity, and her son, Bohemond, was destined to imitate, rather than to succeed, his illustrious father. The second wife of Guiscard was the daughter of the princes of Salerno. The Lombards acquiesced in the lineal succession of their son, Roger. Their five daughters were given in honorable nuptials, and one of them was betrothed in a tender age to Constantine, a beautiful youth, the son and heir of the Emperor Michael. But the throne of Constantinople was shaken by a revolution. The imperial family of Ducas was confined to the palace or the cloister, and Robert deplored and resented the disgrace of his daughter and the expulsion of his ally. A Greek who styled himself the father of Constantine soon appeared at Salerno, and related the adventures of his fall and flight that unfortunate friend was acknowledged by the duke and adorned with the pomp and titles of imperial dignity. In his triumphal progress through Apulia and Calabria, Michael was saluted with tears and acclamations of the people, and Pope Gregory the Seventh exhorted the bishops to preach and the Catholics to fight in the pious work of his restoration. His conversations with Robert were frequent and familiar, and their mutual promises were justified by the valor of the Normans and the treasures of the East. Yet this Michael, by the confession of the Greeks and Latins, was a pageant and an impostor, a monk who had fled from his convent, or a domestic who had served in the palace. The fraud had been contrived by the subtle Guiscard, and he trusted that after this pretender had given a decent color to his arms, he would sink at the knot of the conqueror, into his primitive obscurity. But victory was the only argument that could determine the belief of the Greeks, and the ardor of the Latins was much inferior to their credulity.
the Norman veterans wished to enjoy the harvest of their toils, and the unwarlike Italians trembled at the known and unknown dangers of a transmarine expedition. In his new levies, Robert exerted the influence of gifts and promises, the terrors of civil and ecclesiastical authority, and some acts of violence might justify the reproach that age and infancy were pressed without distinction into the service of their unrelenting prince. After two years' incessant preparations, the land and naval forces were assembled at Otranto, at the heel or extreme promontory of Italy, and Robert was accompanied by his wife, who fought by his side, his son Bohemond, and the representative of the Emperor Michael. Thirteen hundred knights of Norman race or discipline formed the sinews of the army, which might be swelled to thirty thousand followers of every denomination. The men, the horses, the arms, the engines, the wooden towers, covered with raw hides, were embarked on board one hundred and fifty vessels. The transports had been built in the ports of Italy, and the galleys were supplied by the alliance of the Republic of Ragusa. At the mouth of the Adriatic Gulf, the shores of Italy and Epirus inclined towards each other. The space between Brundusium and Durazzo, the Roman passage, is no more than one hundred miles. At the last station of Otranto, it is contracted to fifty, and this narrow distance had suggested to Pyrrhus and Pompey the sublime or extravagant idea of a bridge. Before the general embarkation, the Norman duke dispatched Bohemond with fifteen galleys to seize or threaten the Isle of Corfu, to survey the opposite coast, and to secure a harbor in the neighborhood of Valona for the landing of the troops. They passed and landed without perceiving an enemy, and this successful experiment displayed the neglect and decay of the naval power of the Greeks. The islands of Epirus and the maritime towns were subdued by the arms or the name of Robert, who led his fleet and army from Corfu, I use the modern appellation, to the siege of Durazzo. That city, the western key of the empire, was guarded by ancient renown and recent fortifications by George Paleogus, a patrician victorious in the Oriental Wars, and a numerous garrison of Albanians and Macedonians, who in every age have maintained the character of soldiers. In the prosecution of his enterprise, the courage of Guiscard was assailed by every form of danger and mischance. In the most propitious season of the year, as his fleet passed along the coast, a storm of wind and snow unexpectedly arose. The Adriatic was swelled by the raging blast of the south, and a new shipwreck confirmed the old infamy of the Acroceraunian rocks. The sails, the masts, and the oars were shattered or torn away, the sea and shore were covered with the fragments of vessels, with arms and dead bodies, and the greatest part of the provisions were either drowned or damaged. The ducal galley was laboriously rescued from the waves, and Robert halted seven days on the adjacent cape to collect the relics of his loss and to revive the drooping spirits of his soldiers. The Normans were no longer the bold and experienced mariners who had explored the ocean from Greenland to Mount Atlas, and who smiled at the petty dangers of the Mediterranean. They had wept during the tempest. They were alarmed by the hostile approach of the Venetians, who had been solicited by the prayers and promises of the Byzantine court. The first day's action was not disadvantageous to Bohemond, a beardless youth 
who led the naval powers of his father. All night the galleys of the Republic lay on their anchors in the form of a crescent, and the victory of the second day was decided by the dexterity of their evolutions, the station of their archers, the weight of their javelins, and the borrowed aid of the Greek fire. The Apulian and Ragusian vessels fled to the shore. Several were cut from their cables and dragged away by the conqueror, and a sally from the town carried slaughter and dismay to the tents of the Norman duke. A seasonable relief was poured into Durazzo, and as soon as the besiegers had lost the command of the sea, the islands and maritime towns withdrew from the camp the supply of tribute and provision. That camp was soon afflicted with a pestilential disease. Five hundred knights perished by an inglorious death, and the list of burials, if all could obtain a decent burial, amounted to ten thousand persons. Under these calamities, the mind of Guiscard alone was firm and invincible, and while he collected new forces from Apulia and Sicily, he battered or scarred or sapped the walls of Durazzo. But his industry and valor were encountered by equal valor and more perfect industry. A movable turret of a size and capacity to contain five hundred soldiers had been rolled forwards to the foot of the rampart, but the descent of the door or drawbridge was checked by an enormous beam, and the wooden structure was constantly consumed by artificial flames. While the Roman Empire was attacked by the Turks in the east and the Normans in the west, the aged successor of Michael surrendered the scepter to the hands of Alexius, an illustrious captain and the founder of the Comnenian dynasty. The princess Anne, his daughter and historian, observes in her affected style that even Hercules was an equal to a double combat, and on this principle she approves a hasty peace with the Turks, which allowed her father to undertake in person the relief of Durazzo. On his accession, Alexius found the camp without soldiers, and the treasury without money, yet such were the vigor and activity of his measures, that in six months he assembled an army of seventy thousand men, and performed a march of five hundred miles. His troops were levied in Europe and Asia, from Peloponnesus to the Black Sea. His majesty was displayed in the silver arms and rich trappings of the companies of horse-guards, and the emperor was attended by a train of nobles and princes, some of whom, in rapid succession, had been clothed with the purple, and were indulged by the lenity of the times, in a life of affluence and dignity. Their youthful ardor might animate the multitude, but their love of pleasure and contempt of subordination were pregnant with disorder and mischief, and their importunate clamors for speedy and decisive action soon disconcerted the prudence of Alexius, who might have surrounded and starved the besieging army. The enumeration of provinces recalls a sad comparison of the past and present limits of the Roman world. The raw levies were drawn together in haste and terror, and the garrisons of Anatolia or Asia Minor had been purchased by the evacuation of the cities, which were immediately occupied by the Turks. The strength of the Greek army consisted in the Varangians, the Scandinavian guards, whose numbers were recently augmented by a colony of exiles and volunteers from the British island of Thule. Under the yoke of the Norman conqueror, the Danes and English were oppressed and united. A band of adventurous youths resolved to desert a land of slavery, 
the sea was open to their escape, and in their love of pilgrimage they visited every coast that afforded any hope of liberty and revenge. They were entertained in the service of the Greek emperor, and their first station was in a new city on the Asiatic shore. But Alexius soon recalled them to the defense of his person and palace, and bequeathed to his successors the inheritance of their faith and valor. The name of a Norman invader revived the memory of their wrongs. They marched with alacrity against the national foe, and panted to regain in Epirus the glory which they had lost in the Battle of Hastings. The Varangians were supported by some companies of Franks or Latins, and the rebels who had fled to Constantinople from the tyranny of Guiscard were eager to signalize their zeal and gratify their revenge. In this emergency, the emperor had not disdained the impure aid of the Paulicians or Manichaeans of Thrace and Bulgaria, and these heretics, united with the patience of martyrdom and the spirit and discipline of active valor, the treaty with the sultan had procured a supply of some thousand Turks, and the arrows of the Scythian horse were oppressed to the lances of the Norman cavalry. On the report and distant prospect of these formidable numbers, Robert assembled a council of his principal officers. You behold, said he, your danger, it is urgent and inevitable. The hills are covered with arms and standards, and the emperor of the Greeks is accustomed to wars and triumphs. Obedience and union are our only safety, and I am ready to yield the command to a more worthy leader. The vote and acclamation, even of his secret enemies, assured him, in that perilous moment, of their esteem and confidence, and the duke thus continued, Let us trust in the rewards of victory, and deprive cowardice as the means of escape. Let us burn our vessels and our baggage, and give battle on this spot, as if it were the place of our nativity and our burial. The resolution was unanimously approved, and without confining himself to his lines, Guiscard awaited in battle array the nearer approach of the enemy. His rear was covered by a small river, his right wing extended to the sea, his left to the hills, nor was he conscious, perhaps, that on the same ground Caesar and Pompey had formerly disputed the empire of the world. Against the advice of his wisest captains, Alexius resolved to risk the event of a general action, and exhorted the garrison of Durazzo to assist their own deliverance by a well-timed sally from the town. He marched in two columns to surprise the Normans before daybreak on two different sides. His light cavalry was scattered over the plain. The archers formed the second line, and the Varangians claimed the honors of the vanguard. In the first onset, the battle-axes of the strangers made a deep and bloody impression on the army of Guiscard, which was now reduced to fifteen thousand men. The Lombards and Calabrians ignominiously turned their backs. They fled towards the river and the sea, but the bridge had been broken down to check the sally of the garrison, and the coast was lined with the Venetian galleys, who played their engines among the disorderly throng. On the verge of ruin, they were saved by the spirit and conduct of their chiefs. Gaeta, the wife of Robert, is painted by the Greeks as a warlike Amazon, a second Pallas, less skillful in arts, but not less terrible in arms. And the Athenian goddess, though wounded by an arrow, she stood her ground, and strove, by her exhortation and example, to rally the flying troops. Her female voice was seconded 
by the more powerful voice and arms of the Norman duke, as calm in action as he was magnanimous in council. Whither, he cried aloud, whither do ye fly? Your enemy is implacable, and death is less grievous than servitude. The moment was decisive. As the Varangians advanced before the battle line, they discovered the nakedness of their flanks. The main battle of the duke, of eight hundred knights, stood firm and entire. They couched their lances, and the Greeks deplored the furious and irresistible shock of the French cavalry. Alexius was not deficient in the duties of a soldier or a general, but he no sooner beheld the slaughter of the Varangians and the flight of the Turks than he despised his subjects and despaired of his fortune. The Princess Anne, who drops a tear on this melancholy event, is reduced to praise the strength and swiftness of her father's horse, and his vigorous struggle when he was almost overthrown by the stroke of a lance which had shivered the imperial helmet. His desperate valor broke through a squadron of Franks who opposed his flight, and after wandering two days and as many nights in the mountains, he found some repose of body, though not of mind, in the walls of Lychnidus. The victorious Robert reproached the tardy and feeble pursuit which had suffered the escape of so illustrious a prize, but he consoled his disappointment by the trophies and standards of the field, the wealth and luxury of the Byzantine camp, and the glory of defeating an army five times more numerous than his own. A multitude of Italians had been the victims of their own fears, but only thirty of his knights were slain in this memorable day. In the Roman host the loss of Greeks, Turks, and English amounted to five or six thousand. The plain of Durazzo was stained with noble and royal blood, and the end of the impostor Michael was more honorable than his life. It is more probable that Guiscard was not affected by the loss of a costly pageant, which had only merited the contempt and derision of the Greeks. After their defeat, they still preserved in the defense of Durazzo, and a Venetian commander supplied the place of George Paleogis, who had been imprudently called away from his station. The tents of the besiegers were converted into barracks to sustain the inclemency of the winter, and in answer to the defiance of the garrison, Robert insinuated that his patience was at least equal to their obstinacy. Perhaps he already trusted to his secret correspondence with the Venetian noble, who sold the city for a rich and honorable marriage. At the dead of night, several rope-ladders were dropped from the walls, the light Calabrians ascended in silence, and the Greeks were awakened by the name and trumpets of the conqueror. Yet they defended their streets three days against an enemy already master of the rampart, and near seven months elapsed between the first investment and the final surrender of the place. From Durazzo, the Norman duke advanced into the heart of Epirus, or Albania, traversed the first mountains of Thessaly, surprised three hundred English in the city of Castoria, approached Thessalonica, and made Constantinople tremble. A more pressing duty suspended the prosecution of his ambitious designs. By shipwreck, pestilence, and the sword, his army was reduced to a third of their original numbers, and instead of being recruited from Italy, he was informed, by plaintive epistles, of the mischiefs and dangers which had been produced by his absence, the revolt of the cities and barons of Apulia, the distress of the Pope, and the approach or invasion of Henry, king of Germany. 
highly presuming that his person was sufficient for the public safety, he repassed the sea in a single brigantine, and left the remains of the army under the command of his son and the Norman counts, exhorting Bohemond to respect the freedom of his peers, and the counts to obey the authority of their leader. The son of Guiscard trod in the footsteps of his father, and the two destroyers are compared by the Greeks to the caterpillar and the locust, the last of whom devours whatever has escaped the teeth of the former. After winning two battles against the emperor, he descended into the plain of Thessaly, and besieged Larissa, the fabulous realm of Achilles, which contained the treasure and magazines of the Byzantine camp. Yet a just praise must not be refused to the fortitude and prudence of Alexius, who bravely struggled with the calamities of the times. In the poverty of the state he presumed to borrow the superfluous ornaments of the churches. The desertion of the Manichaeans was supplied by some tribes of Moldavia. A reinforcement of seven thousand Turks replaced and revenged the loss of their brethren, and the Greek soldiers were exercised to ride, to draw the bow, and to the daily practice of ambuscades and evolutions. Alexius had been taught by experience that the formidable cavalry of the Franks on foot was unfit for action and almost incapable of motion. His archers were directed to aim their arrows at the horse rather than the man, and a variety of spikes and snares were scattered over the ground on which he might expect an attack. In the neighborhood of Larissa, the events of war were protracted and balanced. The courage of Bohemond was always conspicuous and often successful, but his camp was pillaged by a stratagem of the Greeks. The city was impregnable, and the venal or discontented counts deserted his standard, betrayed their trusts, and enlisted in the service of the emperor. Alexius returned to Constantinople with the advantage rather than the honor of victory. After evacuating the conquests, which he could no longer defend, the son of Guiscard embarked for Italy, and was embraced by a father who esteemed his merit and sympathized in his misfortune. End of chapter 56, part 3